Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Uh, John is not with us this morning because he has a very big trial um, starting on Monday, and he is doing the typical things that we defense lawyers do leading right up to the case kicking off, um, dealing with exhibits, making sure witnesses are ready to go, and you have all of your notes and everything prepared. And uh, actually, right after this show, I'll be assisting in that process as well. But uh, while I'm flying solo today, uh, what I wanted to do is go back to a conversation that we started a couple weeks ago about some decisions that came out from the Wisconsin Supreme Court that deal with various Fourth Amendment issues. And sometimes you see this happen where they'll kind of save up some similar cases where they they have um, issues that are, you know, along the same lines. And I think they do this because there is, you know, sometimes the research for one case may affect another one. And since they're already focused on one particular issue, they'll address one that, uh, you know, the research is already there and freshen their minds and that kind of thing. So, uh, yes, a number of cases came out uh, earlier in the summer. And the first one of significance here is a state called State versus a case called State versus Van Beek. And this came from the Court of Appeals. And the issue was whether a consensual encounter becomes a, an unconstitutional seizure under the Fourth Amendment when an officer requests and takes an individual's driver's license to the officer's squad car without reasonable suspicion. So basically what happened here was the defendant ended up being convicted on a drug-related charge after the circuit court denied her motion to suppress. And just to review how that process works, you know, we have first our trial-level court that will deal with issues, basically boots on the ground, uh, in court. And if you've ever had a hearing in court, you know, that's your circuit court, where you actually go there and you're there in court and you have your lawyer, or you're representing yourself or whatever, and issues are presented and the judge will make rulings on them and then that affects how the case goes forward. Uh, then, if uh, one of the parties, either side, disagrees with the judge's ruling on that legal issue, then they have the right to appeal. In criminal cases, uh, if it's a criminal charge and it resulted in a criminal conviction, then a defendant has a uh, right, an absolute right, to appeal, even if it's you know, not a great issue. They still have the right to present it in any way they wish. Um, now, normally, that requires some uh, expertise, and if someone doesn't have a lawyer, they very rarely uh, succeed because there are so many very specific rules that are applied and things have to be framed in particular ways, and there's a great deal of legal research that goes behind citing precedent and interpretation of statutes and a lot of things. That's all the stuff they teach lawyers, you know. Then, depending upon what happens in the Court of Appeals, it can go to uh, the next level, which is the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, if it's a Wisconsin state case to begin with. And then that's a discretionary review. So the Supreme Court of Wisconsin does not have to review a case, unlike in the Court of Appeals, but if they believe that it's a significant issue that could have um, the effect of giving guidance for future cases, or if they see a need to clarify something where there's ambiguity in the law, 
And those are some of the criteria for when a case will be taken by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So let's say somebody wins in the Court of Appeals and then the other side uh, wants to appeal that to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. If they don't take the case, that means that the lower case uh, in the Court of Appeals ruling stands, is undisturbed, unreversed. So then it's possible, although very unlikely, that a case could be um, accepted in the United States Supreme Court if it presents an issue that is of national significance. And you know, all the cases I'm going to talk about today could potentially do that because they involve the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution and our functional equivalent in the Wisconsin Constitution, which is exactly the same provision worded exactly the same way. So that's kind of the background and getting back to this Van Beek case. Um, basically, the majority ruled that based on the totality of the circumstances, the police did, in fact... Um, violate the defendant's Fourth Amendment rights. And um, what happened here is that during a traffic stop, an officer took the defendant's driver's license to run a records check. That's fine. Um, that happens all the time, and that's standard procedure. There's nothing wrong with just determining uh, if the license is valid and so forth. And that, that falls under what we call a Terry stop. And you, you may recall that we were starting to talk about this a couple weeks ago and then time ran out. So that's why I'm circling back. But this happens if you've ever been pulled over for anything. Uh, it's very common that a an officer will ask for your license and take it and then go back to the squad car and utilize their onboard computer system to determine, number one, are you who you say you are? Because... Uh, they're, the police are allowed to identify who you are. So let's start with that. A couple different reasons for that. They want to check and see if there's any warrants out, unpaid tickets, you know, that kind of thing. If you are on conditions of bond in a case or something like that, where you're not supposed to be driving or drinking or something like that. And uh, also just to determine if your driving status is valid. Those are all legitimate reasons. So... Basically, what happened is uh, the officer did that check, didn't find anything wrong. And at that point, the court is saying that he should have returned the license. However, he had some kind of, you know, hunch that there was something going on where he wanted a drug sniffing dog to arrive. So basically, he's still got the license in his hand when he's talking to the defendant and he's uh, continuing to ask her questions at that point. So that's kind of the big no-no, is prolonging this stop after there was nothing that the officer you know, really needed to do or should or could have done after that point. But um, you know, police officers are trained to conduct a search anytime they have an opportunity to. And if there isn't a reasonable suspicion or probable cause, then... To, to see if you can create it, more or less. So, basically, um, what happened here is that because the officer had the license, that that person is really not free to go because it doesn't make sense that you would just, in the middle of a conversation, put your car and drive and then leave because that would be um, 
Well, nobody does that. It doesn't seem logical. And uh, the officer still has your license. That's your property that you're required to have in order to drive. And if you get pulled over, and you, even if you have a valid license, but if it isn't in your possession, you're breaking the law. So, you know, the, the other side on this issue argued that just by the officer having the license in his or her hand doesn't mean that you're not free to leave, which is kind of a silly argument. You know, it's been made before that, uh, oh, the cop could mail it to her later, or you could get a duplicate and all this other stuff. But that's just not logical, and I'm glad the court saw through that. Now, so here's the thing. This happens all the time, um, and really, it's kind of an unusual decision because in these sort of initial encounter type cases that we see all the time, the courts always give tremendous leeway to the police to do basically whatever they logically or reasonably think is necessary to conduct an investigation. And almost always the police articulate something like, you know, the easiest thing to say is, well, the driver seemed nervous and I detected that uh, she didn't make eye contact with me like the way that a normal person would. Something like that, which you know, may or may not be true, but is the kind of thing that is said in order to justify, you know, further inquiry. And typically that's what we see. Or something like, uh, you know, this was an area where people are known to engage in illegal activity when I pulled her over. And because of that, I wanted to see what else happened. And, uh, you know, I, I was getting little uh, indicators and stuff like that. Um, but here we got this kind of clean case where none of those things happened, and the issue really came down to, in a, in a purely, uh, you know, in investigatory way, but based on a mere hunch, can an officer do kind of what the courts have always said you can do, which is, you know, keep keep looking, keep searching, all in the interest of public safety, etc. So, um, yeah prosecution loses in that scenario all right we're going to come back because we have to take a break we'll be back in just a minute and we're back from the commercial break uh, before the break we were talking about this van beek case that the um, wisconsin supreme court has held uh, it is unconstitutional and a violation of someone's fourth amendment rights if an officer retains a person's driver's license when there is no reasonable suspicion that the person's committed any crime or needs any help or anything like that. Again, because uh, the officer, for whatever reason, decided that there needed to be a drug dog called in and walked around the vehicle. So he basically stalled the situation. Um, now, just a little bit more about that, because um, oftentimes when I discuss a topic on this show, I get a flurry of phone calls afterwards like, hey, wait a minute, uh, an officer did that, and uh, I feel like my rights were violated, and what can I do about it? Yeah, very good question, because things have to be lined up in just the right way, and somebody has to be in just precisely the right position in order for this to really something like this to really even have a chance uh, to be reviewed. And it's a good thing when things go up to the Supreme Court, because it does provide guidance uh, in three different ways. One, for lawyers that will need to be able to identify these issues going forward. Secondly, to give guidance to law enforcement officers about what can happen. And these cases are designed to 
give kind of evolving, ongoing instruction for you know the fine tuning of the relationship between law enforcement and the general public. So in this case, the message was sent: don't do that. Okay. Um, but the third way is that we, as citizens, uh, need to know that someone out there, the courts, hopefully, are watching to make sure that we don't have this uh, kind of an evolutionary trend towards um, whittling away at our uh, constitutional rights. And it's one thing that's been a little surprising about not only the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but the U.S. Supreme Court is that, you know, there's, you know, in spite of most of those justices claiming that they are pure textualists and, uh, you know, won't read any kind of policy matters into the law, that's kind of what they've been doing, you know, precisely going beyond just what the law states, but going into interpretation and then applying sort of a layer of public policy um, over the top of it, which is, you know, you might call it judicial activism. I don't, it's not really that, but it's that sort of thing. So it kind of raises um, some interesting points. Now, anyway, going back to what ultimately happened in this first case I'm talking about, um, there was some dissent about taking the license, you know, initially. I mean, there was a... A concurrence that believed in that the initial opinion was correct, but the fact that an officer took the driver's license back to the squad car in and of itself may have also been an unlawful seizure. Um, that's the first time the Wisconsin courts have really dealt with that issue, and it didn't go that far, but because the majority still believed that um, there was an unlawful seizure that occurred. There was just some difference in terms of when it occurred. But as traditionally is the case, Justice Ziegler, Hagedorn, and Bradley came to the opposite conclusion and ruled that the driver's license was not unlawfully seized because when the officer returned, the driver could have asked for her driver's license back and end the interaction. Let me talk about that in something we call reality. <laughs> okay, so it, the the thing that's wrong with this dissent that I strongly disagree with is that it's putting the burden on the driver to end the interaction. Um, think about it. And you get pulled over with uh, the lights flashing and a dude with a badge and a gun comes up and says, may I have your license, please? And you hand it to the officer. He goes back and finds nothing wrong and then reapproaches the vehicle. And and whatever the officer says, like at starting to ask more questions, the, the theory behind this dissent is that anybody in that situation should just say, give me my license back, we're done. Now, think about it. Is there anything in the Fourth Amendment or any other part of the Constitution that puts a burden on the uh, defendant, the person who is, you know, a United States citizen, a citizen in the state of Wisconsin, who is attempting to, uh, you know, invoke certain rights. And, you know, even going back to the case of Miranda versus Arizona, the gist of that case is that it's the officer's responsibility to let somebody know when that particular right is kicking in and that this is one of those times when you should exercise it if you want to. So this idea that anybody could just say, hey, 
give me my driver's license back, we're done, is preposterous because it's in conflict with reality and the way that things really work. No one would really say that. And if you did, well, you know, who knows? That could be, and depending on how the person says it or what words were used or any number of things, it could be argued that it develops probable cause or reasonable suspicion at that point. Now, I keep using these two terms interchangeably, and they actually are two different things, so I want to address that very briefly. Reasonable suspicion is if you could rank things in terms of what level of proof or, or quality of proof is required to take further action, let's just say that the basic, we start with no suspicion or proof or anything. If it's just a completely benign, vanilla type situation where there's nothing going on, okay, there's the officer has no suspicion of any kind. The next level up and again, we can't really apply mathematics to this, but it's a greater burden, whatever whatever level that is, is when an officer will or try and articulate, as I said, reasonable suspicion. And that means um, there's something that would warrant further inquiry, and it's something that is reasonable and not just a hunch. So it's got to be based on what they say, specific articulable facts that the officer had legitimately engaging in a law enforcement function uh, was attempting to gather further information within the bounds of what's permitted. Now, people cannot be arrested based on reasonable suspicion alone. We next have that level higher, which we call probable cause. Probable cause has been a term that gets thrown around and it applies in many different contexts. And despite the best efforts of attorneys and courts all over the world, well, let's just say we're talking about American jurisprudence here, so let's just say all over the country, have had difficulty defining what that is. We know it's more than reasonable suspicion when we say probable cause, but we also know it's it's less than 100% certain. So somewhere in that range, all right? We know that if you could say that something constitutes reasonable suspicion and not probable cause, you know, yes, but how, how do you actually know it when you see it? So probable cause, the term is meant to say that it's, um, you know, there is a, a specific belief that is not only reasonable, but becomes at that level where it's actually probable. And probable, you would think that's a pretty, you know, commonly used word in the English language. That can mean all kinds of things. In many cases, probable becomes possible. Or, you know, probable may mean that it's, uh, you know, more than that. It all depends on the context, and it gets very, very confusing. But anyway, as I was talking about this case, we were talking about that lower level because all the officer was really trying to do was extend the investigation. Um, let's move on to a, a very interesting case that um, also came out over this summer. And this is a case called State versus Birch, B-U-R-C-H. This is a murder case. And um, the Supreme Court upheld the trial court's decision to allow incriminating cell phone data and data from a Fitbit device that the victim's boyfriend was wearing the night of the murder. Um what the Supreme Court looked at here was whether the trial court properly denied the defendant's motion to suppress the data extracted from the cell phone that was seized. 
Um, the defendant argued the police exceeded the scope of his consent and unlawfully shared the cell phone data with another police agency, which helped the detectives connect the dots, all of this, without a warrant. Um, so here's the thing. The majority in the Supreme Court correctly pointed out that there really hasn't been any case in the Wisconsin courts or the federal courts that have decided if a warrant is required for a what we might call a second search. And I want to talk about that because um, a lot of times there's an initial search that is warranted by probable cause. And then the police want to do something else with it. And uh, the question then is, you know, do they need a warrant to do that second thing? Or if they had a warrant for the first one and it doesn't include that second thing, do they need another warrant? So it's time for a break, but we'll get into the meat and potatoes of that in just a minute. So if somebody were to have your cell phone and be able to go through everything that's on there, especially nowadays with the way technology has evolved, whoever's looking at it could probably tell a lot about your life, including where you've been, who you've talked to, what you buy on Amazon, whether you're a vegetarian or not, you know, really a lot of things. And if you think about it, a lot of this is done because this data storing device or this communication device that is your conduit to the entire world, I mean, you could gather somebody's thoughts about uh, political things, about who they're friends with. You could probably determine, and I think some people do, if their spouse or partner is, you know, cheating on them or something by virtue of what's on there. So, you know, cell phones and electronic devices contain a lot of personal information. And add to that the fact that we all know uh, our interaction with the, the commerce of the world includes data mining and, and those companies figuring out what you are interested in, what you might be interested in buying, what buying trends you have, sort of cataloging who you are um, based on things you mentioned in a conversation or whatever. You know, we've all had that experience where you're browsing something online, like you need a new pair of shoes or something like that, and all of a sudden you've got all these ads in your inbox and these pop-ups that come up that, that tell you, hey, if you want to buy shoes, here's this new thing that you can do. So we know that these things have a tremendous amount of information, and when police sees a cell phone, it's generally considered a gold mine of um, stuff. Add to that, by the way, the fact that most cell phones, and I, I would dare say all cell phones, but I might not be correct about that, but you know, cell phones of the typical smartphone nature, let's say, not like a flip phone that doesn't do anything but make calls. Phones that actually interact with the user. Um, Many people don't know this, but when you delete something, it's never really gone. And depending upon the device, it may really never be gone because even if you delete something, there are ways of documenting or memorializing what happened before and after the deletion. Now, I raise this because there have been cases that talk about an issue that's very important under the Fourth Amendment when we're talking about what is a um, proper search and seizure. 
And that has to do with what we call the expectation of privacy that the suspect has in their own property. And we have many, many decades of case law that talk about how a reasonable person would... I'll just give you an example. There's a case that goes way back to the, I believe it was the 1980s, where somebody had some you know, drug packaging material in their trash that they put out on the curb. And you're probably aware of this. The police do, they call it a trash pick. They'll go out in the middle of the night. And if there's a house that they, they're kind of suspicious, something might be going on, but they really don't have any evidence. They'll pick up the trash and it's a bit of an unsavory job, but I I've seen it done many times and the police will go back to the police station and they'll put the garbage bag on the table and, get some rubber gloves on and start sorting through all the stuff that somebody threw away and put out on the curb. So imagine the stuff that you throw away. I mean, anything you've ever thrown away and what that might say about, you know, you. <laughs> okay. So the holding in that case, not surprisingly, is that there is no expectation of privacy in stuff that you put in a trash bag and put out on the curb. And I've always found that kind of interesting. I mean, in other words, it was considered abandoned property. As if you, I mean, the functional equivalent is that you have a package of drugs and, um, you know, you write on it with a big marker, like, these are drugs that uh, Kirk O'Bear, the resident of this home, is putting on the street. Go ahead and take it because I'm abandoning them, you know. I'm being silly, but, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But but the idea that something is being abandoned and that it's open for the pub public inspection, I've always found that to be a little weird because if you put your trash out and then 10 minutes later when you're, you know, raking your lawn, some dude comes in, comes up and just starts rifling through your trash bag, you'd kind of think, wait a minute, you know, what are you doing? That's kind of, you know, you'd feel violated even though it's, you know, abandoned property. It's only abandoned for the purpose of the trash man coming to pick it up. So think about all the implications there. If the rule is that anything you put out by the curb is is a free, you know, freely uh, given to the public to do whatever they want with it, including law enforcement, um, you know, wouldn't that impact like what you throw away? And that's kind of the rule. Like, well, if you had something you didn't want someone to find, you wouldn't throw it away, would you? Um, I don't know about that. I mean, think about all the things that you could buy that you don't want someone to know about, and the packaging is there. I mean, just use your imagination. Not necessarily illegal things, but, you know, what What if I want to throw away um, my packaging for my, you know, adult diapers that I have to wear uh, because of incontinence? Do I want the whole world to know that that's something that I do and I use? Well, I wouldn't think so, but according to the Supreme Court, yeah, by all means, police can do that. So I'm using this as an example because the expectation of privacy argument is one that goes into this matter. And I'll just use that last case as an example because putting it on the curb where the trash truck drives by and merely picks it up and puts it in, that is abandoned. If, on the other hand, you have a gate or a fence that you temporarily store your garbage at or in prior to taking it to the curb, you maintain an expectation of privacy because you haven't released it into the public yet.
kind of an artificial distinction. But anyway, the reason why those cases deal with our concept of expectation of privacy is that it's always something that's analyzed in the context of a Fourth Amendment, which is why it's always been held that the expectation of privacy that one has in their own home and its contents, including who's there and what they're doing, is the highest level of an expectation of privacy that we have in our society based on the reason why we had the Fourth Amendment. Because British soldiers would enter people's homes and say, what's going on here? Are you conspiring against the king? Uh, do you have contraband? Uh, do you have tea that you haven't paid your taxes on? That kind of thing. So the home is the, the you know, you're the king of your castle, so to speak. And you have the right to be safe and secure is the term that we use. So how is that different when we talk about cell phones? Because, you know, I would say in terms of what's private and what someone would intend to keep private, it's a complete farce to believe that stuff contained on a cell phone is different than what you might have in your dresser drawer. Um, because the way it works is, you know, this is your phone. And think about the fact that we add all these security features to them, like face recognition, a thumbprint, a code, all these things. It's all designed so that snooping eyes don't, uh, if you leave your phone sitting on the counter uh, in a coffee shop and someone picks it up, they're not going to be able to see what's on there. Add to that that a lot of the reason we do that is because there's financial information that someone could steal that we want to protect and keep private. And, heck, you know, you everybody knows that you can have conversations that one would think is private uh, by a text message, email, whatever, that you wouldn't want certain people to see. Maybe you're criticizing somebody, your boss. Maybe you're, you know doing some chit-chat behind someone's back that you wouldn't want them to know about, but whatever. It's, it's basically the essence of communication and interacting with other people. So there have been cases that say, hey, everybody knows that cell phones keep data, and everybody knows that if you try and delete something that cops can get it back, and everybody knows that um, you know phones are just... They're just communication devices. They're not really an entire representation of everything you do or think or, or want to do or, your, you know, every, anything else. I mean, if, if you could tell from someone's phone and no other way, like what their sexual orientation is or all kinds of things, that there's literally no other way that someone could keep that from public view other than the belief that the things on their phone are private, how, how could we have a better example of something that really the Fourth Amendment should cover. And it does, but we'll come back to how that plays out in this situation right after these messages. And we're back. So we're talking about this murder case, um, State versus Birch, and this whole thing about cell phone that was obtained. And, of course, there was the reality is that there was data extracted from the cell phone that was inculpatory. It's something that was not good for the defendant. Now, here's the thing. This was done without a warrant. And what basically the defendant, the suspect in this case, gave consent for 
the the cops to search the phone, which we'll come back to that in a second because that's something that no one should ever do. But then what happened was the police went and to another police agency, a different agency altogether, and shared that data. Okay. So there's consent that you can look at it, and that's all that was said. But then they said, thanks, and then they take it to another agency. Then they connected the dots, and none of this was done with a warrant. So the issue is that basically they conduct a second search of the vehicle. Not the vehicle, I'm sorry, the cell phone. uh, By getting that information and sending it on to uh, other detectives that are working on the case in a different police agency. So here's where the court kind of just dodges everything, all right? They're like, you know what? This has never been brought up before. And because of that, we don't really know what to do with it. So the majority opinion said that no case from the Wisconsin court or the federal courts have ever decided that a warrant is required for a second search. And they don't actually address whether a warrant is required for a second search. But they say, even if so, the good faith exception applies here because there's no precedent. So here's my question. If there's no precedent, and if this is a court that can set precedent, why didn't they set precedent? (laughs) That's their job. And they should have gone down the path of saying, this is what you do in this situation. And they didn't. They just said, okay, well, that could be the case. And uh, we don't know. Might be. And if it is then, uh, well, we can't blame the cops for thinking that it it wasn't because no one's ever decided that before. You know, that's fine, but what you normally do as a court is that you make a decision on what's right or wrong, and then you go to that good faith analysis. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the good faith exception, this probably will upset you if you care about your constitutional rights, because what it says, to summarize here, is that, let's say, police are trained to do things a certain way, and they've always done it that way, and then something happens in the courts where they say that what you've done all along is uh, improper and a violation of someone's constitutional rights. And then the theory is that police would say, oh, golly, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. But meanwhile... In good faith, I thought the law was different than it is. And here's where we get into kind of a, you know, splitting hairs contest. The good faith exception comes from a case called Leon. We call it the Leon good faith exception. And it's one of those things where the court may say, yes, the defendant's right. Correct. That, That Fourth Amendment right was violated. This evidence should be suppressed. Right on, man. You got it. That is a good argument and we agree with you however the cop didn't know that because now we're just deciding it and we give the cop a pass and you still get convicted and go to prison so it's kind of like you win but in the end you really lose because they're like yeah good argument good good point thank you for helping us clarify the law but you lose you know type thing so I'm sure that's a terrible feeling when someone correctly identifies that their rights were violated and they say, yeah, but on the other hand, the police wouldn't have known they were violating your rights. So, yeah, we're just going to say next time, next time this happens, not not you, Mr. Defendant, but somebody else in the future 
will benefit from the legal arguments that you've made in order to protect, you know, people's rights. Not yours, but somebody else's. It's very odd, isn't it? But what it comes down to oftentimes is whether or not this is a clarification of an existing principle that, you know, legal scholars and those who are tasked with employing or implementing the law on the streets, that being police, should have realized. And what we normally see when there's a good faith exception applied is when there's a sea change in the law. And what I mean by that is all these years we thought that something was good to go, but now based on um, further developments in other areas of the law, we're going to, as a an appellate court, reverse the law. Reverse the law. Whatever was said before is not valid. You've heard me talk about the um, precedent that lasted for roughly 40 or 50 years um, under the Supreme Court that allowed police officers to draw blood without a warrant from a suspected drunk driver. And then there was a decision in the U.S. Supreme Court just a few years ago that said, oh, yeah, all that is wrong. That was incorrect. We know more about science and other developments in the law that just realized that that old case from the 1960s was incorrectly decided. So we reverse it. And in that situation, you know, what they're saying is that the police were following our guidance, that we had specifically said, you can do this under a set of circumstances. So when, you know, the law is changed in such a way that, no, you can't do this anymore, it makes sense, that you, because otherwise you'd have to go back through 40 years worth of cases and say all those were wrong, all those were violations of people's rights. And can we say there's maybe a convenience factor that the courts don't want to do that? Maybe. But essentially, let's distinguish that with a case where, hey, there is no precedent here. We need to address this issue because the Fourth Amendment has always said that this is wrong. And now that it's been raised, we agree. That's something that where the good faith exception should not apply because it's not changing anything. It's, it's adding context and texture to the law. To, to the interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. And in those scenarios, what typically happens is, oh, well, the Fourth Amendment has always said what it says, and in this scenario, it always has and will be a violation of someone's constitutional rights. It, you don't, you shouldn't say, well, you know, the cops wouldn't have known that, and, you know, by the way, we're not deciding that issue, which is weird, and then even if it were even if we were right or wrong or whatever we do doesn't matter because the good faith exception would apply really really weird weird ruling so it doesn't doesn't help except you know you do see things and this is where the majority opinion just dodges the issue but then you have a concurrence written by justice bradley who concluded that a warrant should have been procured for a second search but agreed with the majority the good faith exception applied because no one's decided the issue so bradley is saying I would have gone that further step and are, and ordered that a warrant should have been procured, which the majority dodged. Justice Dalit 
joined by Karofsky and A.W. Bradley, the other Judge Bradley. They agree with the majority that the Fitbit evidence was properly admitted, although A.W. Bradley disagreed on that point, but they concluded that a second search of the defense cell phone by homicide investigators, investigators without a warrant was a violation of the Fourth Amendment rights and that it should have been suppressed and this good faith issue should never have applied. So what does that mean? Where does it where does that get us? Well, they're basically saying is somebody else has to raise this now, and maybe then we'll we'll deal with it. Kind of weird. All right, I want to move on to another case called State versus Genuous. Genius? I don't know how you pronounce it. G E N O U S. Um, question presented in that case as it went up to the Supreme Court was whether a vehicle stop that is supported by reasonable suspicion of drug activity, um, it, under the circumstances, is uh, proper and this is this goes back to an old theory that you find in the law and that has to do with where a particular car or person is being witnessed and this sounds terrible but it's been the law for a long time but you know police oftentimes say well oh, oh and I've seen it in my cases this is an area known for vandalism and we were watching for potential vandalism and someone's driving through and they're like, hey, let's stop that person and see if they know anything or are doing vandalism when clearly they're not. Or this is an area that we know to be a high traffic drug activity area and they have no other reason to pull the person over other than that they're in that area. Doesn't that sound sketchy? Yeah, sure it does. But we're out of time this week. I'll have to continue the discussion either next week or in a future date. But I hope you've enjoyed this diving into our constitutional rights and what's going on with them. Tune in next week, as you can, every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. It's been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.